0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Good morning, America. I'm Pete Mecca, your host for A veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. My very special guest today is Deborah Lindsay. An avid student of military history, Miss Lindsay, attended the University of Georgia, graduating summa cum laude. She has served on numerous boards, including the Board of Trustees of the National World War II Museum in New Orleans, both the Cobb County and the Atlanta Civil War Roundtables, the Atlanta World War II Roundtable, and the National World War I Museum Advisory Board in Kansas City. She also serves on the board director boards of the Kennesaw State University Museum of History and the Holocaust. A lifelong resident of Marietta, Georgia, Miss Lindsay participates in many local organizations, such as the Cobb Marietta Junior League, Cobb Landmarks, the Atlanta Churchill Society, and the Atlanta History Center, and the Eighth Air Force Museum in Savannah, Georgia. She has traveled extensively, both for pleasure and research, visiting the 19 official Nazi concentration camps, Civil War and World War I battlefields, as well as several of the most important World War II sites, such as Pearl Harbor, Kasserine Pass, Sicily, the battlefields on the Italian Campaign, the Eastern Front, including the former Stalingrad, the beaches of Normandy, the Battle of the Bulge, the Philippines, Guam, and yes, even Iwo Jima. Deborah, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Pete. I'm happy to be here.
1: Well, thank you so much for telling you. Uh, what attracted you to military history?
2: Well, Pete, I um, grew up in the foot of the mountain, um, and my father and I would find balls uh, when he would dig for his gardens. And, um, and, of course, when I was 12, I read the proverbial Gone with the Wind and loved Taken an out-of-town company to uh, the Cyclorama. So my passion for military history started with the Civil War and just um, reliving the antebellum South and and thinking that I had been born 100 years too late. And, <laughs> and, and that just kind of morphed into my interest in uh, World War II, and um, most people don't know this, but my real passion is World War I. I feel like that is Really, the saddest and most unnecessary war that we've um, we've had the
1: displeasure of uh,
2: participating
1: in. I, I agree. I agree on World War One. It was unnecessary, and uh, uh, it it fell to a thing called mobilization that really caused the war. How did you become interested in World War Two history?
2: Um, well, there again you know, with my father, we used to watch every World War Two movie that came on TV, and He'd take me to the theater, and we we discussed at length the um, the social and economic ramifications of uh, the war, but he never discussed his participation. As as most baby boomers, we really didn't push our parents to to tell us about their experiences. But my father was in the Air Force, and so was his brother, who was stationed um, in Italy uh, with the uh, the Fifteenth Air, Army Air Force. So. Um, you know, I, I got started that way, and then I started going to um, Europe at an early age. My parents gave me the option at 16 to either get in a car or going to Europe. And I figured I'd get a car at some point in my life, but I might not get to go to Europe. And um, that was life-changing. And so every time I've been to Europe, um, I've walked battlefields um, and and studied the different sites, um, whether it's um, World War Two, World War One, or... Andean Court, or even Gallipoli. I've been to Gallipoli, which was pretty oh, wow. exciting. Yeah,
1: wow. so, the World War I. What a battle that was. if you want to call it a battle? Uh,
2: oh, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And I, okay. I, I loved, go ahead. Go ahead. I love to travel, but I love to learn. So, you know, that, that's a great way to combine it.
1: There we go. Okay. Why a book on Behind Bob Wire?
2: Um, well, on all my European trips, I've um, tried to visit some of, of the and concentration camps and of Um and then I discovered that there's quite a, a connection between the camps and the military and how the camps are almost always under the uh, cover of armed conflict. In fact, you can make the argument that you, you can't have concentration camps um, they can only be implemented um, under the guise of war, and uh, and that was one of uh, Hitler's twofold uh, objectives: is to cause a world war uh, in order to um, achieve world dominance and eliminate what he considered were um, worthless people, uh, because he felt like that no one would be able to stop him if. A, if it were under um armed conflict and he pretty much got real close to um as we know uh, achieving both goals so yeah that was kind of um but because I'm so interested in the military history um I was interested in seeing the the connection um between um youth concentration camps and having the army um be culpable for it in fact um, that's that's one of the um, objective er, and and defi- that is the definition of um, concentration camps and if you would indulge me I'd like to just quote from my, my book um, the definition so that we're all on the same page about that because oh, yeah. um, all all concentration camps contain the following elements they're civilians targeted as inferior or worthless in the society or political dissenters who pose as a threat, whether it's real or perceived. Military uh, personnel perpetuate and continu- continually control the camp and employ defensive measures such as barbed wire fences, watchtowers, guard dogs, etc., to prevent escape from the prisoners. Finally, prisoners always suffer... Um, Without any conventional due process of law, they maintain little expectation of release and, and their loss of property, which is confiscated, looted, or destroyed. And so you can see where, if you've got an army taking care of that, um, this elements, you can achieve um, a, a great deal of damage against
1: these people. Wow. And... um. I'm sorry? Well, I was going to ask you, what are the main points uh, in your book? What, what did you really want to come across within your book about your main points?
2: Well, it focuses on this symbiotic relationship uh, reliant on the entanglement of uh, the military to achieve uh, a dual goal of the military's um, supremacy uh, and superiority against, uh, you know, perpetuated by... Uh, superior people, quote, superior people that subjugate, uh, or eliminate the undesirable people. And, um, and as I said, you know, Hitler was infamous for this attempt, but my book is not about Hitler and the Holocaust. It is about the history of concentration camps and how, um, they originated. Uh, most people think that the, the system Was first implemented against the Boers during the Boer War in um, in Africa, but actually the first incident was um, the, during the Cuban rebellion when um, the Spanish traditional army was fighting against the guerrillas in um, Cuba, and they implemented concentration camps so they could move the civilian population out of the way, and they could uh, implement this scorched um, uh, earth policy that Sherman notoriously used throughout Georgia and, and South Carolina during the American Civil War.
1: That's very interesting. Um, I don't think people really understand the, the history of the concentration camps. I think most people who have even read some history uh, believe uh, Hitler invented the concentration camps, and that's not to be. Uh, they've been around for a long, long time. Uh, exactly. you know, no nation, yeah exactly. Um, we're going to our first break. Deborah, stay with us. Very, very interesting subject. Folks, stay with us. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. Ladies and
0: gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Okay. All right, folks, we're back with Deborah Lindsay uh, talking about her new book, Behind Barbed Wire. She certainly is an expert on the subject. Uh, Deborah, you visited the 19 official Nazi concentration camps, and we know there were subcamps and things like that. Give us your personal evaluations and feelings about visiting those concentration camps, um, I get that question a lot, Pete, in
2: various uh, forms, uh, and particularly in a woman, you know, aren't you, aren't you depressed and upset? And um, yes, of course, it's, it's depressing and it's, it's heartbreaking. But I liken it kind of like a surgeon. I could never be a surgeon because I just couldn't look at the human body um, as a machine with all the the blood and guts. And I think because I've been in uh, uh, concentration camps for so long, um, I wouldn't say that I'm immune to the um, the horror of it. But uh, I can look at it more analytically. Um, I've been to uh, I've been on a lot of trips with um, other students of the Holocaust and concentration camps, and the Museum historians really don't like Auschwitz and the way the signage is. Um, I was real impressed with it because nothing has changed since um, the early 50s when they opened it up as a memorial site. And so to me, that one, not only because it's such a horrific camp, but because it doesn't have the whistles and bells that so many new museums um, uh, and memorial sites have, it, it makes it more real. Um, it's very stark and it's very, um, it's, it's very life changing. And I have a lot of Jewish friends that have been there that have just absolutely been blown away. I would say that, um, when I went to Bergen-Belsen, that was my most shocking, even though it's, I, I don't know if you know this, but, uh, at the very end of the war, they had a typhoid outbreak and that's when Anne Frank died. And things were so bad that the um, allies came in and just grazed everything over. And those are the pictures you see of the um, bulldozer just putting people in mass graves. And so it's very sanitized because there's nothing left. And they do have a museum there with all the whistles and bells. It's quite effective. But after I went through the museum, which had just opened the first time I went there, I was walking the grounds. And the birds were singing, the flowers were blooming. It was beautiful, beautiful pastoral, um, site. But there were these huge mounds, almost like, you know, the Indian mounds you see in North Georgia. And you realize that those mounds contained thousands of victims. And it was really more shocking to me, uh, than Oswich because it's so incongruent. You had this beautiful, spring day with all the wildlife and plants and all, and you realize the horror that took place there.
1: Wow. Yeah, the beauty covers the the ugliness. Uh, Deborah, you you have been to these concentration camps, and I know you and I understand them and know them. We've read about them. Uh, There are still a lot of people that don't even know exactly what one of these concentration camps did or even looked like. Would you Sort of describe uh, one of them, maybe Auschwitz, or or one that really impressed you that's still standing, and tell the folks actually what happened there.
2: Okay, well, um, I'll start with Dachau. Okay, it's Bavaria, and it opened in, um, I believe, but I think it opened 21 days after Hitler assumed um, the position, his position. Um, so people don't know that that opened in 1933. And uh, it was used as kind of an educational tool. Of um, They would send people there, particularly um, people in low-ranking um, political positions, uh, professors, priests, anybody that wasn't in lock, lockstep with Hitler's uh, goals were sent there for re-education. And most of the people that went there early were released, and people don't know that. They they just went there as indoctrination and to scare people. And even parents would say if their children misbehaved, they'd say, "If you don't behave, um, you know, we're going to send you to Jackout." Wow, kind of like my, my mother used to threaten to send me to Millageville, <laughs> and that I was going to send her to Millageville if I didn't behave. So it was one of those little scare tactics people used. And Jewish people weren't sent there. The only Jewish people were sent there the first couple of years were those that were dissenters and uh, were in positions of um, political or social power. They didn't. They weren't sent there because they were Jewish. They were sent there because of their influence on the society. And Hitler was so um, intent on making sure that he had didn't have any opposition from the uh, civilian population that that's how it started. Then it must run from there and, um, none of the, none of the camps in Germany were used as extermination camps. Now, granted, people died, but they weren't systematically murdered like they were after the Bonsai, uh, conference, uh, in January
1: 1942.
2: The four main, uh, extermination camps were all located in Poland. And the Polish people are very uncomfortable, if you call them the Polish camps. They were the Nazi camps that were located in Poland. And, you know, the, those camps uh, had the highest death rate because those are the ones that came in by rail. You were um, immediately sent to the showers and you were immediately killed. They did not have permanent buildings. They didn't have dormitories. They didn't have um, barracks. Uh, you, you were there simply to be murdered. Wow, and interestingly enough, you had the best chance of living through um, the the ordeal if you were in Auschwitz. If you were selected to live, if you could manage to physically stay alive with your hard work, you had um, that was one of the best camps to be in. Now, if you were not, yes, I met a man who was one of the first twelve to go to, be sent to Auschwitz. And he lucked up and got a position in the kitchen. And because he could sneak food here and there, and he had warmth during the winter, he lived the entire war, his whole experience, in Auschwitz. Oh, and still is a docent there. At the, well, this was several years ago, but he was still a docent at the camp. Which is pretty amazing to think that you could survive Auschwitz for the entire war.
1: That is amazing. That's a very lucky man, too.
2: Yes, absolutely. Very unlucky.
1: Go ahead. He's very unlikely to be there, but he's very lucky he survived. You you got that right. I interviewed a Holocaust survivor last week, and uh, he said his mother and his 13-year-old sister was sent to the showers. Uh, People don't understand that the showers were actually places where they uh, pumped in poison gas and people were exterminated. Uh, it wasn't a shower yeah. at all. It was, a, it was a death camp. Uh, and then they were sent to ovens. Uh, I, I'm sure you have seen those ovens. Uh, have, tell me about the emotion of looking at those like the first time, Deborah. Well, it does really turn your stomach.
2: But you've got to remember it's the showers that, that caused the death and people say, well, I can't believe they threw people in crematorium. They used the crematorium to get rid of the body. The people were already dead. It's the shocking part is they herded them into these showers under the guise of, you know, getting rid of the lights and stuff before they put them in the uh, camp population. So, and their showers at Dachau and, and people have remarked to me many times that oh, I saw the showers. I know it was a death camp. The showers were never used. Um, and 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 they have a crematorium there, but that was used um, because they didn't have any place to bury these people. So, um that's kind of a misnomer that that people think that the, the horrific part is the ovens. That was just an enabled them to dispose of the bodies they had killed in the showers.
1: Huh. Okay. Um what a, what a sour note on history uh, those years were. You know, uh, as okay. we discussed last night, no nation on earth has an ivory soap history. Uh, do you have any confidence the concentration camp issues are behind us?
2: Um, I wish I could say yes, but I don't. Um, we, it's allegedly, um being used right now in North Korea. We're not really sure to what, what extent, you know, the Chinese have used them on and off ever since the, um, there's, uh, revolution. Um, there, I think it was 2018, um, and forgive me, it's in my book, but I can't remember the name of the, uh, country. It's one of those care stands, you know, the, the stand countries. Um, mm-hmm. they opened a concentration camp. Solely for homosexual men, um, huh. and they completely, completely deny it. Um, but, but that was my most recent incident that I could find in order to put my book.
1: And as far I'm as I know, it's brought, up, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up about the the, the homosexual men. Uh, most people still believe that six million Jews died in. The concentration camps, but there were so many other types of individuals that the Nazis, uh, put in the camps and exterminated. Can you expand on that a little bit and tell us some of the other victims?
2: Um, absolutely. Um, in fact, this book morphed from uh, the first book I was writing, um, that I, I'm, I'm almost finished with that deals only with the, uh, 19 official, um, Nazi camps and each chapter is, um, one of the camps. And in that, I make it really clear. I've tried really hard to uh, break it down uh, where there are homosexuals, there were uh, Jehovah's witnesses, there were Catholics. In fact, Dachau was known as the priest camp because they sent the Catholic priests, uh, most of them, to Dachau. Um, anybody that was um, physically or mentally impaired, um, anybody that didn't live up to the quote quote Aryan Standard, uh, was at risk. I have a friend whose aunt lived in Poland and they, they were sent to a concentration and killed and they were legally blind. They, they, they were Catholic, but they were legally blind, so they were worthless eaters, so they were sent to a concentration camp. And, um, just, just a note, six million, uh, Jews died in the Holocaust. Eleven million people died during the war directly from um, the uh, purge that that um, Hitler implemented, and so that means five million people died that weren't Jewish that were killed. So that's a lot of people to forget, and that's one of the things I wanted to point out in my book that that I am not diminishing the the horrible. Experience of the Jewish people, but five million other people suffered the same fate. And yeah. coincidentally, right. only two million people died, and I say only very facetiously, only two million people died in concentration camps. Nine million people Pete, died um, in just shootings of the street, um, with the uh, death squads that went out and rounded up people in villages and shot them dead uh the gas mobile gas vans that they used. Um in fact they used ca- concentration camps because
0: Break, it is
2: so distressing to see these groups of people being shot down the street. But it, yeah. it wasn't distress as far as the Nazis were concerned that it was the, the people getting killed. They were concerned about the, the men that were shoot doing the shooting. They were yeah. worried about the shooters, not the victims, which I find this is yeah. just creepy. Huh.
1: All right, we're going to our second break, folks. Stay with us. Very, very interesting subject. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes.
0: Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised to right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmv.
1: If you do,
2: join us on The Doctor's Lounge and hear The Doctor's Conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: All right, folks, we're back with Deborah Lindsay, an author and military historian. Fascinating, fascinating uh, information about the a concentration camps, especially ones during World War II. Uh, Deborah, let, let me ask you this. Um, as a historian and student of military history, would you like to give us a few comments on what we have witnessed in our own country in the last few years? Are you concerned about that?
2: Um, can you rephrase that? What, what, what are you specifically asking me? <clears throat>
1: Well, you know, uh, there's been some talks about re-education camps here. I know it's kind of like a farce and everything, but do you really think that could happen in this country?
2: Oh, Pete, that is a loaded question. I am, I'm, I have to say I'm pretty discouraged. Uh, I'm hopeful that things will work out, but uh, I'm, I'm not real pleased about some of the things that are happening um, in our country. Um, I wish that we would all pull together and appreciate that we do live in the best country in the world. And even if it's not perfect, can you think of one that's better, that handles things better? And But however, as a a child during Vietnam, um, I am pretty cynical about the government, so... I really don't know where to go on that question.
1: <laughs> uh, I think that I am with you, and I'm sure a lot of folks listening are with you about the uh, uh, what they say I, I love. Oh, yeah, Mark Twain said it best. He said, loyalty to country always, loyalty to government when it deserves it.
2: <laughs> yeah, and well, I haven't I noticed that. it a
1: whole lot recently. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, too. I'll tell you what, we have uh, fascinating history on the Holocaust uh, uh, and b- behind, life behind the barbed wire. Uh, Deborah. where can folks uh, get a copy of your book? Uh, Amazon carries it, and so does
2: um, Barnes & Noble.
1: Okay. Very good. Now, you have traveled extensively. Uh, I think the people may be interested in some of your uh, r- uh, research and travels to the World War II sites. What was stuck out most of your mind when you went to Pearl Harbor, where World War II started for America?
2: Um, Well, I had been there years ago pretty much as a tourist, and I decided that is not the way to go, particularly when you're as passionate about military history as I am. So I've been fortunate to go back with a couple of groups. Um, I went back for the 70th anniversary of the bombing with the National World War II Museum in New Orleans, which was Quite an experience, and it was a lovely ceremony. Um, and, of course, the 75th is coming up this December, and I urge your listeners to consider going. It's, it's very, very memorable. It's just heartwarming to, to think about what those kids did that day and under such adverse, you know, sudden um, tragedy of, of seeing those planes. I have a friend that's her mother, was cooking breakfast and her father's getting ready to go to the base when he saw the planes go over and he ran out with a towel wiping his face off uh, you know getting the shaving cream off and she didn't see him for several weeks and they came by in a jeep to pick her up um, a couple hours later and she was still in her house dress with her apron and luckily she had some quarters in the pocket of her apron so when she had the opportunity uh, to use a payphone she finally got in touch with her husband but when you go out to Pearl Harbor and you hear those stories of what people were actually doing, it makes it so real. And, um, and even though I said it was a cynic, I feel like if something happened like that, our young men today would rise to the occasion just like those fellas did then.
1: You think so? Very good. Very good. I do. Um, I do. Very good. Uh, you also visited the Eastern Front, which was Russia and, and- you this visited the, uh, the former Stalingrad, is that correct?
2: Yes, yeah, it's, uh, what is it, Petrograd now, I think? Yeah. Uh, I did a train trip, uh, we did St. Petersburg, uh, Moscow, and, um, and the former Stalingrad, and it's quite moving, and, and I know that I do not know as much as I should about the Eastern Front and how, um, important it was, and and I'm not diminishing the efforts that the Allies made on those Normandy beaches and what a fantastic um, operation that was. Uh, Stalingrad, in my opinion, was the, the, the turn for the Germans because they lost so many people. And had we not had the Soviets as our allies, the war would have gone on longer. Certainly we would have won it. But um, And I, I think because of the Cold War, um, people have kind of uh, ignored that portion of the war, and I think that the Eastern Front is, is very, very important. Um, and yeah. uh, it kind of holds your nose as to our our um, allies on that front, but um, you <laughs> know
1: they, they did help us win the war. <laughs> yeah, Stalingrad was is it, called the turning point of World War II. Uh, yeah. What a battle that was! How did they commemorate these, the battle? Uh, in Stalingrad your museum or what oh there's
2: multiple museums I mean if they're like selling stations there's one on every corner and huh. they call it, um, what is it what are the Russians called they don't call it World War Two. they call it um, the um, Glorious War or I'm, I'm sorry I can't remember that right now but they have a different name and to hear them talk they won the war single handedly um <laughs> What what's a shame is the city itself is very neglected, and our guide would have to pull back weeds and stuff to show us markers and stuff. It's not kept it kept well at all. It's, it's a very sad, sad city. Nothing like St. Wow. Petersburg
1: and Moscow. Wow, well, that's that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. and you mentioned the beaches of Normandy. I know you've been there several times. Uh, tell me about your experiences at the Normandy beaches.
2: Well, the first time I went, I took my trusty guidebook and did it on my own. And the signage is really, really good. If, if anybody's considering doing that, just getting in the car um, with their guidebook, they'll they'll have a very memorable experience. Uh, and then the next time I went, I went with the National World War II Museum to... Um, with their own um, historians, and we had several uh, vets go with us, and so I saw most of the same sites I'd seen on my own. But the continuity of—we uh, started in England and came across the Channel and ended up in Berlin—and it was it was quite something to, to see the continuity of what those GIs went through um, storming into um, into Europe. And, and what's the name of the court where? It's a pivotal scene in Band of Brothers, uh, the farm there in in Normandy, and they're behind the hedge roses. um, I I can't remember the scene, but anyway, we got to go to that farm, and it's not open to the public. We got to meet the uh, owner, and it was his father that was depicted in Band of Brothers, so that was kind of fun.
1: Wow, okay. Uh, What is your feelings about Normative. When you see all those beautiful, beautiful cemeteries with all thousands of boys that paid the ultimate sacrifice, how how, how does that affect you, Deborah? When you see that, Pete, hey, don't make me cry. It, okay, it's I just <laughs> it's
2: it, it, it's just unbelievable, and uh for anybody that's planning a trip to go there, uh it's closed this year. I don't know when they'll lift the, the restriction from COVID, but be sure you're at the at the cemetery at five o'clock because they play taps and it will bring you to your knees. And um one thing that, that I questioned the first time I went, there were families out on the beach frolicking in the in the water and having picnics and stuff and I thought, Oh, you know, that's sacred ground but um, the feeling there is that um, those men's sacrifice will come to nothing if they can't enjoy that real estate that our American, uh boys uh, bought back for the French. So um, when you look at it that way, I, I kind of understand that. But it's quite moving. And I would say, if you go, be sure you go to the German Cemetery across the street, Um I've convinced a lot of my friends to go there and they've all thanked me. It's it's quite a different situation. And it's very obvious when you look at the beautiful setting that our boys are in and the white pristine crosses, um, it, and then you go and you see the these mammoth, dark granite crosses. Uh, well, well they're, they're headstones at the, at the German um, cemetery. It's, it, Quite a comparison of. It. It, to me, it looked like you know the clean, pure uh, uh, effort that our boys made, and 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 the horrors that the the Nazis made. But then you've got to look at the dates on those headstones and realize those boys were fighting because they had to anyway, and and their lives were cut down, you know, just like our boys. And it shows the the senselessness of war. That's the worst way in the world to. Stop uh,
1: a disagreement. Right. That's a uh, war is failed politics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, exactly. Now, unless uh, we only got three minutes to next break, but maybe you can get this in. Unless people have watched uh, George C. Scott and Patton, um, most people don't know about the Casserine Pass. Tell us about the Casserine Pass.
2: Well, I was very excited to go there and that was two months before the um what they call it the uh arab spring so i don't don't know when people can go back but um it it's uh, it was quite a sight i'm very proud that i got to go see it however in the movie it's all desert and now it's all green so it's um that was that was kind of shocking it's it's um Sometimes you just have to be there to see what, what it's really like. And uh, on that trip, um, I, we had a historian, very famous, and I will not mention his name. Um, he has written fantastic books about uh, the European campaign. And he admitted that he that was his first trip to Europe. And I just don't understand how you can write a book about um, military campaigns and not understand the terrain and not have
1: walked the battlefield. So I, th- I thought that was kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, the Kasserine Pass. That was that was our first engagement in the African campaign against the Nazis and our boys did not fare well at the Kasserine Pass. Uh, no. until that story? <laughs>
2: Well, um I think anybody that's watched Patton as many times as I have kind of knows that story and, and it really sets Patton up for success and and I have to add that that uh, that movie really contributed to my interest in um in military history and I'm certain a George Patton uh, fan and um I've had the pleasure of meeting a couple of his grandchildren. So, um oh. uh, um yeah, but you know we were very green we di- we didn't know what we were getting into and it it shows um and i sure. think regardless of the things you have to say about um some of george patton's tactics uh he was the right man for the for that moment because he shaped those boys in line and made them wear their helmets and keep the chin straps
1: on and and we needed the discipline it, it showed. It really showed. Uh, Deb, we're going to our, our final break, and we'll be back. Uh, we're going to talk about maybe the Battle of the Bulge and Guam, and I think the readers would really like to hear about your trip to Iwo Jima. Uh, that's a rare I mean, it, Yeah. Okay, so, folks, we'll be right back uh, after our last break. Please stay with us.
0: Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support, so please go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com.
1: If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're
0: listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank
1: you for listening. Okay, we're back with uh, military historian Deborah Lindsay, a very, very uh, well-traveled young lady. Uh, Tell us about your visit to the Battle of the Bulge. Battlefield? Um, well,
2: actually, I've been there uh, a number of times and I've gotten down some of the foxholes that are still there and um, got the, the, some great small museums there. Um, uh, I, call, I, I concluded my trip with a trip to Luxembourg and went to the U.S. Cemetery there where uh, George Patton is buried. And uh, one interesting thing about that is uh, when you look at the Cemeteries in Normandy, all the officers, all the generals are, uh, buried among the men. And that's, that's the way it is in all the U.S. Uh, military cemeteries except for the one in Luxembourg. And there was such a pilgrimage to go see George Patton's, um, grave that the, the families that had loved ones on either side of his grave complained because they were trampling the grass and all. So he is at the head of the cemetery in his own special site, which I think he would be thrilled to death to know. But um, (laughs) (laughs) um,
1: Knowing George, yeah, that's true.
2: I mean, he he did have the ego. Um, The first time I went, um, I just found a little uh, B&B just just to stay in, and I found out that that would have been um, headquarters for some Nazi officers during the battle. So that that was kind of interesting. But um, Oh, there's so much that's still preserved there that I highly recommend going and getting out of your car and 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 walking, um, getting back in the woods, and it's um, it's quite eerie, um, and it's, um, it's it's quite moving. So, yeah. But I would advocate anybody that's interested in military history going to all the sites they possibly can and get out of the museums and walk the turf.
1: So, yeah. That's like walking the Civil War battlefields. You just don't need to be doing that from a car. Um, nope. All right. No, let, no, a, let, 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 yeah, let's switch the, the campaign. Let's go over to the Pacific Theater. You've been to the Philippines visiting the World War II uh, sites there. Tell us a little bit about the Philippines.
2: Um, well, I was there for two weeks, and we traveled extensively. We stayed at the Manila Hotel where um, MacArthur and his family lived. And then we went down to the beaches, and then um, oh, forgive me, the beach where he stormed back when he returned. Um, there's some huge, huge bronze statues um, of him coming on with his uh, aide de camp and the, the other men that were with him. So we we got to see just about everything. But I have a quick story about him if if you'd if you'd allow me to say. Sure, go ahead. With him. Uh, I did a tour of his apartment at the Manila Hotel, and um, the guy was saying, oh, you know, MacArthur had this and that, and you know, all these portraits of MacArthur, it's very, you know, it's almost a museum of MacArthur, and he said that uh, MacArthur had a dinner party one night and invited um, all the news correspondents to get in on their good side, and he um it was a very formal dinner and they used the gold chargers under the dinner plates. And then after dinner, he got the guys up and he walked around and he said, well, here's this and here's that and here's the bedroom. But My wife sleeps here and went on through the kitchen and there was a little servant's quarters behind the kitchen with an army pot in it. He said, this is where I sleep because, you know, I'm a military man. So um after the dinner party the uh butler realized that one of those gold chargers was missing. So you it was obvious that one of those news correspondents had taken it. So he was very irritated. So a couple months later, he had them all back. And in the course of the conversation, he said, I didn't want to tell y'all, one of my um gold chargers is missing. And I, I really would appreciate you giving it back. And so they all looked at each other very sheepishly. And one of the young guys spoke up and said, Oh, General, I'm so sorry. I put it under your covers, and you're caught. (laughs) So (laughs) he pretty much busted General MacArthur.
1: (laughs) That's a great, great story. (laughs) I think a lot of folks uh, sort of uh, don't know about how the Filipinos suffered during World War II. And Manila was pretty near wiped off the map uh, to get the Japanese out of there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I want to, uh, yeah, there's so many, I thought about writing a book called uh, In the Middle of Nowhere about the battles in the Pacific that nobody knows about. We lost Marines Army guys on little islands that you've never heard of. And most of the boys are still there. Uh, it was, it was a, a quite a war out there in the Pacific. Now, you, you also say you went to Guam. You know, we flew the B-52s out of there during the Vietnam War. And uh, I've been on stage with uh, uh, with uh, Representative Hank Johnson many times, and uh, Hank and I get along fine. But uh, Guam has not sucked yet due to our military presence, <laughs> as he made the statement. <laughs> <exactly. laughs> yeah, he did say that. But tell us a little bit about Guam. Um, well, I,
2: I really enjoyed that, and I was with uh, a friend of mine who's a military historian, and he knew somebody on the base. So, he picked us up about 6 o'clock one morning and took us all the way around uh, what he thought was important, and it's quite nice to have somebody that's stationed there to give us a private tour, but the, I hate I hate to say this, but the most um, exciting moment on Guam was when I, he took us to see the um, memorial to uh, military dogs, and I'm quite the dog lover, I have Two basset hounds, and I took more pictures of that dog statue than any other <laughs> site on Guam, I believe.
1: Oh, <laughs> never
2: was our, heard that before. I've never heard about yeah, that
1: statue before. All
2: right. Yeah. That, well, you, I'm about. sure. I'm sure you've seen pictures of it in different books, but but that's where it is—is is in Guam.
1: Huh. I interviewed a gentleman, a World War II veteran that passed away about a week after I interviewed him, but he was from Guam. Uh. I think they're called Camaros, but he joined the military right before Pearl Harbor and was at Pearl Harbor, uh, during the attack. And he was one ship away from Missouri when the Japanese surrendered. Fascinating story. Uh, the Guam, the people from Guam are, are fascinating individuals. I met a lot of them that, that the island itself, it, it's sort of small, isn't it? It, it's very small. I wish I could remember
2: the mentioned I, I want to say it's like two or three miles, about six or eight miles. I mean, it's very small, but that was our staging spot uh, to fly
1: into um, Iwo Jima. All right, let's move on there. Uh, Iwo Jima, number one, how did you get to go there? Uh, tell us about your visit there and the future visits on Iwo Jima. Very interesting story okay. about the, the, the Battle of Go ahead, Deborah. Okay, well,
2: do not dismiss um, Facebook, because a friend of mine had posted on Facebook he was going to um, Iwo Jima. So Facebook can be a wealth of information. And I immediately called him, and I said, I want to hitch on your bandwagon. And i um, It's it's very difficult to go. You've got they limit it. There's only one day out of the year that you can go, and um, there it's only a day trip. There are no facilities there. It's actually a Japanese air and naval station. Um, There's you know no restaurant. There's no um, hotel. There's nothing. It's is a working uh, military station. So they flew us in and. what was really exciting is I've never seen so much brass in my life. And they were standing there as we uh, did planes and all these generals and admirals and all were shaking our hands. It was, it was just really thrilling. Um, but they uh, had two great big tents set up and the Americans sat in one and the Japanese sat in the other. Um, and what impressed me most about that is we had, maybe five or six veterans with us. And they were on the front and center of our tent. So they had the best seats that we had. The Japanese only had one veteran that attended. And they put him on the back row. So there's no huh. way he could see what was going on. And I thought that was very telling that um, they that did that. But um, they had um, our Marine band come in and, um, and play. It, it, it was quite something... And who was the um, the uh Japanese admiral that we shot down, um Yokamoto or what, what was his name? Uh Yamamoto. Can't, yeah. His his son his grandson gave the uh keynote speech, which is kinda wow. interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then um, I have I can say that I hiked up uh Suribachi. And now I was on an asphalt road But um, and I wasn't carrying probably sixty pounds of gear, but I did climb it and I did get to the summit. And it was that was probably my aha moment um, of my military travels. And I found out, and I didn't believe this until I fact checked when I got home. More people have been to the top of uh, Mount Everest than have been to uh, Iwo Jima. Really. Yes. And I am never going to Mount Everest, so that's going to be my claim to <laughs> fame at the, the top of um, Iwo Jima. Yeah. And they, um, as I said, they are, you can only go one day a year, and um, they fly you in early in the morning. you They bring in your lunch and your drinks. There's nothing there for you except what you bring in. Um, the women had to wait to use the facilities because there's no um, bathrooms for women. And then you fly out late that afternoon, but they're not going to allow the Americans to come anymore after there are no more American veterans to come. So, And I would imagine that could be maybe next year um, at the rate we're losing our World War II veterans. So when that happens, no more Americans can go.
1: Wow. Uh, I think a lot of people don't know the, the famous flag raising on Iwo Jima of the six flag raisers, only uh three of them didn't get off the island. Uh, three of them were killed in action. I interviewed uh, Deborah, three veterans of Iwo Jima. Uh, I could not believe this, but one was in a tank, one was a, a captain, and one was a grunt. Uh, he landed on uh, uh, Iwo Jima with 240 members of, of Easy Company, U.S. Marines. And he was one of seven that walked off the island. But interviewing these guys, I found out that they all knew each other. Uh they had met I ran up at some, Yeah, at some point. I, I I don't know what the odds are of that, but uh, the, the the flag raiser Iwo Jima is so well remembered. It's the most famous photograph of World War II. How did you feel about being there when it really happened? Where it really happened. Well,
2: I mean, it, it does send tingles down your back. What disappointed me was when, um, we raised the, um, American flag, there was a, a child, probably 10 or 12 old boy that they let him help hoist the flag up. And by the time I got my camera up to take a picture, they were already lowering it. The, the Japanese do not want that American flag flying. Oh. No, so, I mean, it went straight up and it went straight back down. So I, I didn't get a picture of it when it was very top.
1: It, it that's interesting. Next I thought the American flag flew uh, 24 hours at that site.
2: Oh, no, sir, it does not. That is Japanese that is, territory.
1: That is very interesting. Uh Can't believe all the propaganda you see or read. <laughs> what, nope. it, uh, Deborah, we got a couple minutes left. Uh, give me some final thoughts on your book. Okay, well I just wanted the listeners to know that,
2: um it, uh, covers as many concentration camp examples as I could find, including, uh, the ones from the, uh, in, in, uh, Cuba, the Boer War, the Southwest, um, uh, Africa, the Germans first concentration camp, and then the last chapter as, focuses on a few of the camp, uh, systems since World War II. And one of them is the Civil War. I don't know if your listeners know this, but the Union Army used Confederate, uh, used concentration camps against, uh, the South. And one of the most famous people that was, uh, incarcerated was Harry S. Truman's grandmother. She and her t- six children were, um, rounded up and put in a concentration camp out in Missouri.
1: Okay, babe, we gotta wrap it up. Pretty interesting. That is something else. Deborah. Such a fascinating interview. Uh, Miss Deborah Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us today. You are absolutely wealth of knowledge. Uh, congratulations on your new book, and best of luck to you, young lady. Thank you very much,
2: Pete. It's been a pleasure.
1: Oh. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.